Hey everyone, and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. And we'd like to start today's episode by asking a question. Do countries do better when women are leading them? To answer this question, we thought we would start by looking back in history at all the leaders who have been women that we know about. We'd like to start by going back to some of the earliest female leaders that we could find. We'll start with Kubaba, who was the first known female ruler of Sumer, which was the world's first known civilization. Kubaba, also called Kubao or Kubaba, brewed and sold beer in the ancient city of Kish in Mesopotamia. In an empire that endured well over 1,000 years, she was the only queen to reign without a man. But it seems later generations rejected this transgression of gender roles and much is not known, in fact, about Kubaba's rule. Artemisia, ruler of Halicarnassus, brought five ships and helped Xerxes defeat the Greeks in the naval battle of Salamis. She later erected a mausoleum that was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And of course, all of us have heard of Cleopatra, who was both the last pharaoh of Egypt and the last of the Ptolemy dynasty of Egyptian rulers. As she tried to maintain power for her dynasty, she made famous connections with Roman rulers Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Other than Cleopatra, there were other female Egyptian rulers, including Hatshepsut and Nefertiti. Now we'd like to also go a little bit more in-depth on one of these female rulers, Queen Anna Njinga. She was born the same year that the Ndongo people, led by her father, began fighting against the Portuguese, who were raiding their territory for enslaved people and attempting to conquer the land that they believed included silver mines. Queen Anna was a capable negotiator who managed to convince the Portuguese invaders to limit the trade of enslaved people, which was widespread at that time in Central Africa, an area where she would rule as a queen for 40 years. Queen Jinga was also a mighty warrior. She later led her army, a coalition of forces, in a complete rout of the Portuguese army in 1647, and then laid siege to the Portuguese capital in Central Africa before signing a peace treaty with the colonial power. Despite all of these outstanding accomplishments and her decades-long reign, however, she was vilified by European contemporaries and writers as an uncivilized savage and was said to have embodied the worst of womankind. However, Njinga had a lasting legacy. She managed for a time to halt the Portuguese incursion into her lands, slow the trade of enslaved people in Central Africa, and lay the groundwork for Angolan independence centuries later. Today, Queen Njinga is revered as Angola's founding mother, with a monumental statue in the capital city of Luanda. Although we have in recent times come to understand her great contributions as the ruler of the Ndongo people, Queen Njinga faced a lot of vilification, especially from the Europeans, as a strong female leader. This is definitely a trend that we have seen in history, where women have had their gender used as a weapon against them rather than just a characteristic. There has also been systematic erasure of their histories, so we don't know much about the actual women uh, except what was written about them, and much of that suffers from bias.
Moving into more modern periods of history, we can see a lot more women stepping into roles of leadership and power as heads of state or other government officials. And looking at their stories, we can start to understand how women are viewed by society when they take those roles, as well as how they actually perform. So we'll start off with someone that I had not heard about before we started researching for this episode. Kirtek Anchimatoka served as the head of the parliament of the Tuvan People's Republic called the Little Kural from 1940 till 1944. She was the first ever elected woman head of state in the world. An amazing accomplishment. Siri Mavo Bandaranaike was the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka three times, from 1960 to 1965, 1970 to 1977, and 1994 to 2000. She was the world's first female Prime Minister. A committed socialist, she aimed to raise the standard of living of her people and to reduce inequality. She succeeded in this, but high government spending also resulted in economic stagnation. Her pro-Buddhist and pro-Sinhalese policies alienated the Tamil minority, resulting in a bloody civil war. Since 1983, about 68,000 people have lost their lives. Despite this terrible blemish on her record, to have served as a woman three times as a prime minister is no insignificant achievement. Especially since Bandaranaike was an Asian woman, which challenges the notion that Western countries have made greater strides in equalizing gender opportunities. Another woman from Southeast Asia was Indira Gandhi. She was India's third prime minister, serving from 1966 until 1984 when her life ended in assassination. She was the daughter of India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. During her tenure, India was achieving tangible success through advancements of the Green Revolution. She also led the country into the nuclear age with a detonation of an underground device in 1974. She also was Prime Minister during the War for Independence of Bangladesh. Despite all these advancements during her tenure, Indira Gandhi was criticized both internally and internationally for authoritarian tendencies and corruption during her rule. In fact, in 1975, the Allahabad High Court found her guilty of dishonest election practices, excessive expenditure and using government resources for party purposes. She was asked to resign. Instead of resigning, she declared a state of emergency and imprisoned thousands of her opponents. Despite this, she returned to power as prime minister with elections in 1980. And eventually, she ordered the Indian army to confront six separatists at the sacred Golden Temple in Amritsar, which resulted in several hundred reported casualties. And on October 31st, 1984, she was shot and killed by two of her bodyguards, both of whom were Sikh, in retribution for the attacks at the Golden Temple. So typically, while we would think about authoritarian tendencies as a male characteristics, Indira Gandhi proved that that kind of addiction to power transcends gender. Now, Isabel Perón served as the vice president of Argentina from 1973 to 1974 and later succeeded her husband, Juan Perón, in the position of president after his death. She served as president from 1974 until 1976, was Argentina's first woman head of state and the first woman head of state in South America. She was also the first woman president in the world, though she was not elected to the position. 
She inherited a lot of problems, including inflation, labor unrest, and political violence, and attempted to solve them by appointing new cabinet ministers, printing money to pay foreign debts, and imposing a state of siege in November 1974. The controversies surrounding her social welfare minister, Lopez Rega, who was forced into exile for terrorist activities, did not help her situation. So, a lot of moderate military officers urged her to resign, but she refused. And the situation continued to worsen until 1976 when she was seized by Air Force officers and held under house arrest for five years. In 1981, she was convicted of corrupt practices, um, but was later paroled. In 2007, an Argentine judge issued a warrant for her arrest on charges of allowing the armed forces to commit human rights abuses during her presidency. However, Perón had already gained Spanish citizenship by then and was briefly arrested, but Spain refused to extradite her for a trial. Certainly, another record of a woman leader that was marred with blemishes and authoritarian tendencies. And a story that is completely ignored by most history textbooks. Meanwhile, England had Margaret Thatcher, who became Britain's Conservative Party leader and in 1979 was elected Prime Minister, the first woman to hold that position for that country. She was nicknamed the Iron Lady and she served as the Prime Minister from 1979 to 1990. That's a very long time. She had three terms and during her three terms, she cut social welfare programs, she reduced trade union power and privatized a lot of industries. She had to resign in 1990 due to her unpopular policies and because of power struggles within her party. So she actually is an example of a leader that was not exemplifying those so-called feminine tendencies of socialism and welfare politics. Our next female leader, whose name I will most likely mispronounce, but I will try my best, Vigdis Finnbogadottir, was elected Iceland's first woman head of state and the first woman in the world to be elected president of a country. She had a term length of exactly 16 years and became the longest serving woman head of state in any country in history. Now, Finnbogadottir won her first election in 1980 against three male candidates, triumphing with a focus on education and culture. She ran unopposed in 1984 and 1992, and won with 92% of the vote in 1988. Wow, she must have been very popular. As President Finn Bogadotir highlighted the importance of retaining and celebrating Iceland's cultural identity and heritage, and after serving as president, she founded the Council of Women World Leaders in 1996 and has been honored with many awards for her humanitarian work and the promotion of cultural values. Meanwhile, in the Philippines, Corazon Aquino was known for her revolutionary role in reinstating democratic rule to the Philippines. Immediately upon entering office of president, she began work to create a new constitution for the country, restored a bicameral congress, and as president, she focused on attempts to stabilize the economy and to enforce civil liberties and human rights. She decided not to seek re-election in 1992, attempting to act as a model for future presidents to allow peaceful changes in power and to emphasize the democratic will of the people. Despite all these great reforms, her presidency is rarely talked about or even noted. Outside of the Philippines. Outside of the Philippines. And it's comparable to even like Nelson Mandela or George Washington in America as the story is told. Or even in China, the protesters to democratize. But Corazon Aquino's 
contributions are much less acknowledged. In fact, I think most people would recall that the person she defeated, Ferdinand Marcos, his wife Imelda Marcos' shoe collection was more famous than Corazon Aquino's incredible achievements. Now, the last woman leader we'd like to talk about is Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. She was president of Liberia from 2006 to 2018, the first woman elected head of state in the country and the first woman head of state in Africa. She's known for her role in bolstering Liberia's economic, political, and social landscapes after years of civil war, and for earning a Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 for women's rights work. So this is like a small snapshot of, you know, selected women leaders that came to mind when we were researching for this episode. And of course, there are more omissions than the people that we've mentioned. There have been a lot of women in history that have been ignored or that have not even been noted down as leaders because their roles behind the scenes have been dismissed from first ladies and the wives of presidents or heads of state to actual elected officials whose contributions have not gained the attention that they should have. Exactly. In fact, a lot of women have supported their husbands when their husbands were unable to perform their duties and have actually ran countries in their name. So we're not going to be able to, of course, pay tribute to all of these wonderful women. So when we look back at all these great women leaders that we have had all over the world, we don't see a common thread here. Some of them have been great social reformers, others have been authoritarian dictators. Some have been responsible for revolution and change in their countries. Others have been responsible for maintaining the status quo in the countries. So at least by looking through this small snapshot of women leaders from the past, it doesn't give us a certain definition of leadership that is unique to gender. While we have been focusing on women as heads of state, we'd also like to talk a little bit about the feminist movement and the fight for women's suffrage, especially in the early 1900s. So we'd really like to just talk about that movement. And one of the most notable figures was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Stanton is said to be a champion for women's rights, but while she may have embraced fairness in the abstract, it is said that she publicly enunciated bigoted views of African-American men and women. The suffrage struggle itself took on a similar flavor, and a lot of it sold out the interests of African-American women in the fight for the right to vote, especially in the United States. So white women at that stage who did not have the right to vote felt that it would dilute their cause if they embraced voting status for African-American men and women and felt that their right to vote should take precedence over African-American men. Yes. And in order to justify that, they used the racism in Jim Crow states as an excuse for their discriminatory treatment of black suffragettes and of black women. So an important topic to note in this is the idea of intersectionality, where, especially in the United States in this example, we have women who were fighting for the right to vote and for the right to be more involved in the political sphere, 
and were themselves subject to oppression. And we have black people who are fighting for the right to vote and people of color who are fighting for the same rights. But there is a combination of those people. There are women, people of color, people who face discrimination and oppression through multiple different systems. And often they are pitted against each other while a lot of people share all of those traits. Basically what you're saying is that women leaders aren't inherently better at understanding oppression just because they are oppressed too. Yes, but there it is important to also note the duality of that where they might not be able to understand all forms of oppression or all forms of discrimination, but in our society as it is today, because they are women, women leaders have had to move past certain barriers in order to rise to positions like president or prime minister or heads of state, especially in fields like politics, which globally are male-dominated fields. True, but I think the attitudes of women leaders can be very varied. Um, A lot of women leaders feel that because they got a leg up that they should reach down and pull other women up and they act on that. But a lot of other leaders feel that because they were able to shatter their glass ceilings, other women should be able to do that on their own too. So that I think is like still active in current society and leadership. Yeah. And no matter where they stand on that, it is clear that there is still barriers to entry and barriers to advancement in these fields, which makes an episode on women leaders all the more necessary. Another reason that we kind of thought about this topic and looked into it closely was because the current situation in the world. Currently, women serve as heads of state or government in only 22 countries, and 119 countries in the world have never had a woman leader. And this is true even in positions slightly lower down. Only 21% of government ministers were women, and only 14 countries have achieved 50% or more women in cabinets. Likewise, only 25% of all national parliamentarians are women, which has only gone up from 11% in 1995. So, when we try to put all of this together, what can we conclude? Well, there's a lot of countries that have never had a female leader in modern times, including China, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. Plus, a lot of countries that have only ever had one female leader. Right, so it's difficult to compare women and their leadership styles to men and their leadership styles when men have had so much more opportunity to be leaders. Yeah, and the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action was an international agreement that set a target to achieve balanced political participation and power sharing between genders in decision making. But most countries have not been able to reach this target. Well, so keeping that aside, that we are not really comparing apples to apples, what evidence do we have that women, when they are in positions of power, actually excel at Yeah, so for example, there is research on panchayats, or local councils in India, that discovered that the number of drinking water projects in areas with women-led councils was 62% higher than in those with men-led councils. And while that may not be a direct causation, that number is certainly significant enough to indicate some sort of correlation. In Norway, a direct causal relationship between the presence of women in municipal councils and childcare coverage was found. 
So more recently, there was this study conducted by Supriya Garikapati from University of Liverpool and Uma Kambampati from University of Reading. They concluded that COVID outcomes are systematically better in countries led by women. And to some extent, this may be explained by the proactive and coordinated policy responses adopted by them. Again, though, despite all of these advances and these this research that may indicate that women in positions of leadership have important effects on access to drinking water or childcare or COVID responses, it's hard to judge these patterns when women leaders are still such a small sample. Currently, only 9 out of 50 U.S. governors are women, for example. More generally, the strong performance of women leaders doesn't appear to have improved public beliefs about women leadership. In fact, a culture of distrust in women leaders endures. Recent research from the Reykjavik Index for Leadership from Cantor and Women Political Leaders suggests that this is true even in countries with long experiences of women's leadership. Aside from having to battle sexist comments even as they climb ranks or succeed on a global stage, leaders such as New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern, who was globally lauded for her leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic, struggles with the public's distrust of her policies simply because of her gender. Another country where this is an issue is Japan, where only 38% of the people are comfortable with the idea of a female head of government. Even in a country like Germany, where Angela Merkel has had a long-time chancellorship, only 41% of the people felt comfortable with a woman being head of government. And so really, it's a myth that just one female leader can change society. If the country has only ever had one female leader, then if you try to attribute every woman's future to that if you if you tie that woman leader to everybody's performance that's not fair to all the aspirations of all the other women in that country and it's not fair to that single leader who after all is human and will have some failings yeah so like if there was a woman leader who was bad you can't use that as an example for every possible future female leader that may come. And you can't use that as a way to discourage them from coming. But yet that is very true of yeah. most countries where, especially the countries that have had an authoritarian female leader, it has made it that much harder for other women to come up. Another barrier to women in leadership roles is that in countries like the US, we tend to overestimate their representation in one study by 14% on average. And so generally, if you think that gender balance already exists, you're less likely to think that it's important to elect women leaders or that there is a problem here. But as we've seen through all of this data, the sample size is minuscule. We're looking at a dot on a chart dominated by male leaders. Yes, and I think that there's a pyramid effect too with the glass ceilings for women, which is like if you're in college or high school, you see plenty of women teachers and plenty of women counselors and plenty of women in the administrative offices. So you think that maybe everything's equal all the way to the top. But as you start going up the hierarchy, very few women hold positions at the top of the uh, academic ladder as deans of universities or chancellors. So I think that if we look at all the women who are at the lowest rung and think that we've achieved equality, that's where the perception comes in that we don't need to elect more leaders. 
Another barrier to gender parity and equality is stereotypes. There's stereotypes that women's aren't agentic or decisive or authoritative, and if they are too much of any of those, they're deemed as bossy and annoying and loud. So all of these traits people associate with men and with leaders as well. And so the notions of being a leader have become bound up with the idea of masculinity. So that has been a huge barrier to women getting into power. And earlier we were talking about intersectionality. These stereotypes also apply to women of certain races. For example, black women are stereotyped as too abrasive and Asian women are stereotyped as too docile to lead. And so society's perception puts women at a losing position no matter what they look like, who they are, what they could be, because they're not given the chance to rise to leadership because of predetermined views. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. So, what are the solutions to this? Well, one of the most remarkable and I think important ideas that we have seen is that a solution to gender equality is not to change the image of women or men, but to change the image of leadership and leadership roles. Because in history, we have seen so many men as leaders that we have started to tie ideas of masculinity, which again, don't apply to every man either, their societal views, but we have tied those ideas to being the idea of a leader, which automatically will discount anyone who does, who does not fit that very narrow box. We shouldn't really have those predetermined views for genders either, but that's a different discussion. True. True, but it impacts every area, including how we prepare the leaders of our future. So within our household structures, if we don't model that equality between boys and girls, then we are perpetuating that for another generation. Yeah, because it really does start in the home. It goes from homes to schools. It goes from schools to universities. It goes from universities to every field. It goes to movies, television, entertainment, and all the way to government. Exactly. So unless we start seeing more women in leadership roles, we are never going to be able to determine if women make better leaders or not. So in history, women leaders have been ignored. They've come on the losing side of history simply because they are not talked about. And looking at current times, if we don't see more women in leadership roles, we can never know the remarkable impacts that they could have. And that leaves us all the worse off. That leaves us all as the losers. Thank you all for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to it and follow us on Instagram at History Written by the Losers and on Twitter and TikTok at History Losers. This has been History Written by the Losers. Losers.